Welcome to Volume 4 of this Uvula Audio presentation of Rip Foster Rides the Gray Planet. Chapter 7. Earthbound. There was something else that Rip didn't add, although he knew the planeteers would realize it in a few minutes. Probably some of them already had thought of it. To move the asteroid into a new orbit, they were going to fire nuclear bombs. Most of the highly radioactive fission products would be blown into space, but some would be drawn back by the asteroid's slight gravity. The craters would be highly radioactive, and some radioactive debris would be scattered around too. Every particle would add to the problem. Is there anything we can do, sir? Koa asked. Rip shook his head and signed the transparent bubble. If you have a good luck charm in your pocket, you might talk to it. That's about it. Nuclear physics had been part of his training. He read the gamma meter again and did some quick metal calculations. They would be exposed to radiation for the entire trip. At a daily dosage of... Koa interrupted his train of thought. Evidently, the sergeant major had been doing some calculations of his own. How long will we be on this rock, sir? You've never told us how long the trip will take. Rip said quietly. With luck, it'll take us a little more than three weeks. He could see their faces faintly in the dim sunlight. They were shocked. Spaceships blasted through space between the inner planets in a matter of hours. The nuclear-drive cruisers, which could approach almost half the speed of light, had brought even distant Pluto within easy reach. The inner planets could be covered in a matter of minutes on a straight speed run, although to take off from one and land on the other meant considerable time used in acceleration and deceleration. The planeteers were used to such speed. Hearing that it would take over three weeks to reach Earth had jarred them. This piece of metal isn't a spaceship, Rip reminded them. At the moment, our speed around the sun is just slightly more than ten miles a second. If we just shift orbits and kept the same speed, it would take us months to reach Terra. But we'll use two bombs to kick the asteroid into orbit, and then fire one to increase speed. The estimate is that will push up to about 40 miles a second. Koa spoke up. That's not bad when you think that Mercury is the fastest planet, and it only makes about 30 miles a second. Right, Rip agreed. And when we really have the sun's gravity pulling us in, we'll increase speed even more. We'll lose a little after we pass the sun, but by then we'll be almost home. It was just space luck that Terra was on the other side of the sun from the asteroid's present position. By the time they approached, it would be in a good place, just far enough from the line to the sun to avoid changing course. Of course, Rip's planned orbit was not aiming the asteroid at Earth, but at where the Earth would be at the end of the trip. That means more than three weeks of radiation, then, Corporal Santos observed. Can we take it, sir? Rip shrugged, but the gesture couldn't be seen inside his spacesuit. At the rate we're getting radiation now, plus what I estimate we'll get from the nuclear explosions, we'll get the maximum safety limit in just three weeks. That doesn't leave us any margin for error, even if we risk getting radiation sickness. So we have to get shielding pretty soon. If we do, we can last the trip. Private Domenico saluted, clumsy in his spacesuit. Sir, I ask permission to speak. Rip hid a smile at the little Italian's formal manner. In space, formality was forgotten. What is it, Domenico? Sir, I think we shouldn't worry so much about this radiation, eh? You would think of some way to take care of it, sir. 
What I want to assert is when do we let go of the bombs? Radiation, I do not know much about, but I can set those bombs like you want them. Rip was touched by the Italian planetier's faith in his ability to solve the radiation problem. That was why being an officer in the special order squadrons was so challenging. The men knew the kind of training that officers had, and they expected them to come up with technical solutions as the situation is required. You'll have a chance to set the bombs in just a short while, he said crisply. Koa, load all the bombs but one 10KT onto the landing boat. Stake the rest of the equipment down. While you're doing that, I'll find the spots where we plant the charges. I'll need two men now and more later. He went back to his instrument, putting the radiation problem out of his mind, a rather hard thing to do with the colorimeter glowing pink next to his shoulder. Koa detailed the men to load the nuclear bombs into the landing craft, left Peterson to supervise, and then brought Santos with him to help Rip. The bombs are being put on the boat, sir, Koa reported. Fine, there isn't too much chance of the blast setting them off, but we'll take no chances at all. Koa, I'm going to shoot a straight line out toward Alpha Centauri. You walk that way and turn on your belt light. I'll tell you which way to move. He adjusted his siding rings while the sergeant major glided away. Moving around in a no-weight world was more like skating than walking. A regular walk would have lifted Koa into space with every step. Of course, the asteroid had some gravity, but it was so slight that it didn't count. Rip set at the top of the instrument's vertical hairline on Alpha Centauri, and then waited until Koa was almost out of sight over the asteroid's horizon, which was only a few hundred yards away. He turned up the volume on his helmet communicator. Koa, move about ten feet to your left. Koa did so. Rip sighted past the vertical hairline at the belt light. That's a little too far. Take a small step to the right. Good. Just a few inches more. Hold it. You're right in position. Stay right where you are. Yes, sir. Rip turned to Santos. Stand here, Corporal. Take a sight at Koa through the instrument to get your bearings, and then hold position. Santos did so. Now the two lights gave Rip one of the lines he needed. He called for two more men, and Trudeau and Nunez joined him. Follow me, he directed. Rip picked up the instrument and carried it to a point 90 degrees from the line represented by Koa and Santos. He put the instrument down and zeroed it on Messier 44, the beehive star cluster in the constellation Cancer. For a second sighting star, he chose Beta Pixis as being the closest to the line he wanted, made the slight adjustments necessary to set the line of sight since Pixis wasn't exactly on it, then directed Trudeau into position as he had Koa. Nunez took position behind the instrument, and Rip had the cross-fix he wanted. He called for Doust, then carried the instrument to the center of the cross formed by the four men. Using the instrument, he rechecked the lines from the center out. They were within a hair or two of being exact on, and a slight error wouldn't hurt anyway. He knew he would have to correct with rocket blasts once the asteroid was in the new orbit. X marks the spot, he told Doust. He put his toe on the place where the cross lines met. Douse took a spike from his belt and made an X on the metal ground. All set, Rip announced. You four men can move now. Let's have the cutting equipment over here, Koa. The planetiers were all waiting for instructions now. In a few moments, the equipment was ready, fuel and oxygen bottles attached. 
So who's the champion Torchman? Rip asked. Cor replied, Kemp, sir. Kemp was one of the two American privates. He took the torch and waited for orders. We need a hole six feet across and twenty feet deep, Rip told him. Go to it. Kemp pushed the striker button and the torch flared. Watch your eyes, he warned. The planeteers reached for belt controls and turned the rheostats that darkened the clear bubbles electronically. Kemp adjusted his flame until it was blue-white, a knife of fire brighter by far than the sun. Koa stepped behind Kemp and leaned against his back because the flame of the torch was like an exhaust, driving Kemp backward. Kemp bent down and the torch sliced into the metal of the asteroid like a hot knife into ice. The metal splintered a little as the heat raised it instantly from almost absolute zero to many thousands of degrees. When the circle was completed, Kemp adjusted his torch again and the flame lengthened. He moved inside the circle and cut at an angle toward the perimeter. His control was quick and certain. In a moment, he stood aside and Koa lifted out a perfect ring of thorium. It varied from a knife edge on the inner side to 18 inches thick at the outer edge. In the middle of the circle, there was now a cone of metal. Kemp cut around it. The torch angled toward the center. A piece shaped like two cones set base to base came free. Since the metal cooled in the bitter cold of space almost as fast as Kemp could cut it, there was no heat to worry about. Alternately cutting from the outside in the center of the hole, Kemp worked his way downward until his head was below ground level. Rip called for a halt. Kemp gave a little jump and floated straight upward. Koa caught him and swung him to one side. Rip stepped into the hole and Santos gave him a slight push to send him to the bottom. Rip knelt and sighted upward. Kemp had done a good job. The star Rip had chosen as an overhead guide was straight up. He bounced out of the hole, and as Koa caught him, he told Kemp to go ahead. Domenico, here's your chance. Get tools and wire. Find a timer and connect up the 10-kiloton bomb. Nunez, bring it here while Domenico gets what he needs. Kemp was burning his way into the asteroid at a good rate. Every few moments, he pushed another circle or spindle of thorium out of the hole. Rip directed some of the men to carry them away to the other side of the asteroid. He didn't want chunks of thorium flying around from the blast. The sergeant major had a sudden thought. He caught off his communicator, motioned to Rip to do the same, then put his helmet against Rip's for direct communication. He didn't want the others to hear what he had to say. His voice came like a roar from the bottom of a well. Lieutenant, do you suppose there is any chance the blast might break up the asteroid? Split it in two. The same thought had occurred to Rip on the Scorpius. His calculations had shown that the metal would do little more than compress, except where it was melted from the terrific heat of the bomb. That would be only in and around the shaft. He was sure the men at Terrabase had figured it out before they decided that A-bombs would be necessary to throw the asteroid into a new orbit. He wasn't worried. Cracks in the asteroid would be dangerous, but he hadn't seen any. This rock will take more nuclear blasts than we have, he assured Koa. He turned his communicator back on, and went to the edge of the hole for a look at Kemp's progress. He was far down now. Peterson was holding one end of a measuring tape. The other end was fastened to Kemp's shoulder strap. The Swedish corporal showed Rip he had only about eight feet of tape left. Kemp was almost down. Rip called, Kemp, when you reach bottom, cut toward the center. Leave an inverted cone. Got it, sir. Be up in two more cuts. 
Domenico had connected cable to the bomb's terminals and was attaching a timer to the other end. Without the wooden case, the bomb was like a fat, oversized can. It had been shipped without a combat casing. Koa, make a final check. You could untie the landing boat, except for one line. We'll be taking off in a few minutes. Right, sir. Koa glided toward the landing boat, which was out of sight over the horizon. It was nearly time. Rip had a moment's misgiving. Had his figures or his sightings been off? His red hair prickled at the thought. But the ship's computer had done the work, and it was not capable of making a mistake. Kemp tossed up the last section of thorium and then came out of the hole himself, carrying his torch. Rip inspected the hole and saw with satisfaction it was in almost perfect alignment and ordered the bomb placed. He bent over the edge of the hole and watched Trudeau pay out wire while Domenico pushed the bomb to the bottom. The Italian made a last-minute check and then called to Rip. Ready, sir! He dropped into the hole and inspected the connections himself, then personally pulled the safety lever. The bomb was armed. When the timer acted, it would go off. Back at ground level, he turned up his communicator. Koa, is everything ready at the boat? Ready, sir. The planeteers had already carried away the torch and its fuel and oxygen supplies. The area was clear of pieces of thorium. Rip announced, We're setting the explosion for ten minutes. He leaned over the timer, which rested near the lip of the hole, took the dial control in his glove, and turned it to position ten. He held it long enough to glance at his chronometer and say, Starting now. Then he let it go. Wasting no time but not hurrying, he and Domenico returned to the landing boat. The planeteers were already aboard, except for Koa, who stood by to cast off the remaining tie line. Rip stepped inside and counted the men, all present. He ordered, Cast off! As Koa did so and stepped aboard, he added, Pilot, take off! Straight up! The landing boat rose from the asteroid. Rip counted the men again, just to be sure. The boat seemed a little crowded, but that was because the rear compartment took up quite a bit of room. Rip watched his chronometer. They had plenty of time. When the boat reached a point about ten miles above the asteroid, he ordered, Stern tube! The boat moved at an angle. He let it go until the sight at the stars showed they were about in the right position, 90 degrees from the line of the blast, and where they would be behind the asteroid as it moved toward the new course. He looked at his chronometer again. Two minutes. Line up at the side if you want to watch, but darken your helmets to full protection. This thing will light up like nothing you've ever seen before. It was a good thing space cruisers depended on their radar and not on sight, he thought. Usually, spacemen opened up visual ports only when landing or taking a star sight for an astroplot. The clear plastic of the domes had to be shielded from chance meteors. Besides, radar screens were more dependable than eyes, even though they could pick up only solid objects. If the Consop's cruiser happened to be searching visually, it would see the blast, but the chance had to be taken. It wasn't really much of a chance. One minute, he said. He faced the asteroid, then darkened his helmet, counting to himself. The minute ticked off slowly, though his count was a little fast. When he reached five, brilliant, incandescent light lit up the interior of the boat. Rip saw it, even though his helmet was dark. The light faded slowly and he put his helmet back to full transparent. A mighty column of fire now reached out from the asteroid into space. 
Rip held his breath until he saw that the little planet was shearing off its course under the great blast. Then he sighed with relief. All was well so far. Someone muttered, By Jenna, I'm glad we're out here instead of down there. The column of fire lengthened, thinned out, grew fainter until there was only a glow behind the asteroid. Rip took his astrogation instruments and made a number of sights. They looked good. The first blast had worked about as predicted, although he wouldn't be able to tell how much correction was needed until he had taken star sights over a period of five or six days. Let's go home, he ordered. Back on the asteroid, a pit that glowed with radioactivity marked the site of the first blast. Rip ordered it covered as much as possible with the thorium that had been taken from the hole. While the men worked, he plotted the lines for the second blast, found the spot, and put Kemp back to work on a new hole. Two hours later, the second blast threw fire into space. In another three hours, with the asteroid now speeding on its new course, Rip set off the explosion that blasted straight back and gave extra speed. Three radioactive craters marked the asteroid. Rip checked the radiation level and didn't like it a bit. He decided to set up the landing boat and their supplies as far away from the craters as possible, which was on the sun side. They could move to the dark side as they approached the orbit of Earth. By then, the radioactivity from the blasts would have died down considerably. He was selecting the location for a base when Doust suddenly called, Lieutenant! Lieutenant Foster! There was urgency in the planetary's voice. What is it, Doust? Sir, take a look. About three degrees south of Rigel. Rip found the constellation Orion and looked at bright Rigel. For a moment he saw nothing. Then south of the star he saw a thin orange line. Nuclear drive cruisers didn't have exhausts of that color. There was only one rocket-drive ship around, so far as they knew. Rip said softly, Let's get our house in order, gang. Looks like we're going to get a visit from our friends, the Connies. Chapter 8. Duck or Die Sergeant Major Koa's great frame loomed in front of Rip. Do you think they spotted us, sir? Rip hated to say it. Probably, Koa. Can you estimate from the exhaust how far away they are? Not very well, Lieutenant. From the position of the street, I'd say they're decelerating. The planeteers looked at Rip. He was in command, and they expected him to do something about the situation. Rip didn't know what to do. The rocket launcher, their only weapon, wasn't designed for fighting spaceships. It was useful against snapper boats and people, but firing at a cruiser would be like sending mosquitoes to fight elephants. He sized up their position. For one thing, they were right out in the open, exposed to anything the Connie cruiser might throw at them. If they could get under cover, there might be a chance. It would at least take the Connies a while to find them. For a moment, he thought of hurrying into the landing boat and sending out a call for help to the Scorpius. But he thought better of it. They weren't certain that the Connies had spotted them. He would wait until there was no doubt. Meanwhile, they had to find cover. His searching eyes fell on the cutting torch. If they could use that to cut themselves right into the asteroid. Suddenly, he knew how it could be done. On the sun side, he remembered a series of high-piled, giant crystals of thorium. They could cut into the side of one of those, and with Kemp's skill, they might be able to do it in time. He called, Kemp, 
Koa, bring the torch and fuel and follow me. In his haste, he took a misstep and flew headlong a few feet above the metal surface. Koa, gliding along behind him, turned him upright again. He saw that the giant Hawaiian was grinning. Rip grinned back. It was the second time he had lost his footing. They reached the peaks of Thorium, and Rip looked them over. The tallest was perhaps forty feet high. It was roughly pyramidal, with a base about sixty feet thick. It would do. Kemp, the private hurried to his side. Take the torch and make us a cave. Make it big enough for all hands and equipment. Kemp was a good planeteer. He didn't stop to ask questions. He said, I'll make a small entrance and open the cave out inside. He picked up the torch and got busy. Rip smiled. The planeteer was right. He should have thought of it himself. But it was good to see increasing proof that his men were smart as well as tough and disciplined. Bring up all supplies, he told Koa. Move the boat over here, too. We won't be able to bury that, but we want it close by. He had an idea for the landing boat. It could maneuver infinitely faster than the big cruiser. They could put the supplies in the cave, then take to the boat, depending on its ability to turn quickly, and on Douse's skill at piloting to be able to play hide-and-seek. Dow certainly could keep the asteroid between them and the cruiser. The plan would fail when the cruiser sent a landing party. They would certainly come in snapper boats, and the deadly little fighting craft could blast rings around the landing boat. The snapper boats had gotten their name because fast acceleration and quick changes of position could snap a man right out of his seat if he forgot to buckle his harness tightly. The solution would be to keep the landing boat close to the asteroid, and at the first sign of a landing party, they would blast in and take to the cave, using the rocket launcher as a defense. The supplies began to arrive. The planeteers towed them, two crates at a time, in a steady line of hurrying men. Kemp's torch sent an incandescent knife three feet into the metal on each cut. He was rapidly slicing out a cave. He cut the metal out in great triangular bars, angling the torch first one side and then the other. Koa came and stood beside Rip. I haven't seen the Connors exhaust for a while, sir. Looks like they've stopped decelerating. We can't see them at all. Meaning what? Rip asked. He thought he knew, but he wanted Koa's opinion. They're in free fall now, sir. That could mean they're just hunting in the area. Or it could mean that they've stopped somewhere close by. They could be looking us over, for all we know. Rip surveyed the stars. If that's the case, they're not too close, Koa. Otherwise, they'd block out a patch of stars. Well, sir, Koa hesitated. I mean, if you were looking over this asteroid and you weren't sure whether the enemy had it or not, how close would you get? Probably about one AU, Rip said jokingly. That was one astronomical unit, equal to about 93 million miles, the distance from Earth to the Sun. That would be a good safe distance, sir, Koa agreed with a grin. But let's suppose the Connie isn't as timid as I am, Rip went on. He might be only a few miles out. The question is, would he wait to get closer before launching his snapper boats? The big Hawaiian answered frankly. I've never been in a space ground like this before. I don't know what the answer is. We'll know soon, Rip said grimly. A thought had just struck him. 
The Scorpius had trouble finding the asteroid because it was just one of many sailing along through the belt. But now the asteroid was the only one traveling across the belt. It would make an outstanding blip on any radar scope. It wasn't possible that the Connie cruiser had missed the blip in its significance. Oh, the Connie may be looking us over, Rip added. But I can tell you one thing for sure. He knows we've taken the asteroid. Only human hands could swerve a heavenly body from its orbit. Koa looked wistfully at the atomic bomb which remained. If we had a way to throw that thing at them. But we don't. And the thing wouldn't explode anyway. We don't have the outside casing with an exploder mechanism, so it has to be turned on electrically. Rip could see no way to use the atomic bomb against the Connies. It was too big for use against a landing party. Besides, it would put the planeteers in danger. Ever have trouble with the Connies before? He asked Koa. More than once, sir. Sometimes it seems like I'll never get a job where I don't have to fight Connies. Rip was trained in science and planetary techniques, and he didn't pretend to know the ins and outs of interplanetary politics. Just the same, he couldn't help wondering about the strange relationship between the consolidation of people's governments and the Federation of Free Nations. Connies and Feds, mostly planeteers, but sometimes spacemen, were constantly skirmishing. They fought over property, over control of ports on distant planets and moons, and over space salvage. Often there was bloodshed. Sometimes there were pitched battles between groups of platoon size. But at that point, the struggle ended. The law of the Federation said that no spaceship could fire on a Connie spaceship or on Connie land bases, except with special permission of the Space Council. The theory was that small struggles between men, or even between small fighting craft like the snapper boats, was not war. But firing on a spaceship was war, and the first such act could mean starting war throughout the solar system. It made a sort of sense to Rip when he thought about it. Little fights here and there were better than a full-scale war among the planets. Koa suddenly gripped his arm. Sir, look up. The short hairs on the back of Rip's neck prickled. Far above, blackness blotted out stars in the shape of a spaceship. The Connie had arrived. Rip ordered urgently. Kemp, stop cutting. The rest of you, get the stuff under cover. Ram it. He hurried to lend a hand himself, hustling crates into the cave. Kemp had made astonishing progress. There was room for the crates, if stacked properly, and for the men besides. Rip supervised the stacking, then the placement of the rocket launcher at the entrance. All hands inside the boat, he ordered. Doused, be ready to take off at a moment's notice. You'll have to buck this box around like never before. He explained to the pilot his plan to dodge, keeping the asteroid between the boat and the cruiser. We'll make it, sir, Douse said. I'm not worried, Rip replied, and wished it were true. He looked up at the Connie again. It was getting larger. The cruiser was within a few miles of the asteroid. As Rip watched, fire spurted from the cruiser, and it moved with gathering speed toward the asteroid's horizon. He watched the exhaust trail, wondering why the Connie had blasted off. He has something up his sleeve. Koa muttered. We should do what? Let's take no chances, Rip stated. Come on. The men were already in the boat. He and Koa joined them. They stood at a window and watched the Connie's trail. The trail dwindled. Koa said, Something's up. 
Suddenly, new fire shot from one side of the cruiser and it spun. Balancing fire came from the other side, and for an instant the three exhausts formed a cross with the darkness of the Connie's hull on the center. Then they could see only the exhausts from the sides. The stern flame was out of sight. He's made a full turn to come back this way, Rip stated tensely. Doused, get ready. The Connie was perhaps twenty miles away. It grew larger, and the side jets winked out. A few seconds later, fire spurted from the nose. Rip figured rapidly. The cruiser had gone away far enough to make a turn. It had straightened out, heading right for them. Now the nose tube was blasting, slowing the cruiser down. He sighted, holding out one glove and gauging the Connie's distance above the horizon, and his heart sped up. The Connie was right on the horizon. Ram it, Rip called. Around the asteroid, quick. Acceleration jammed him back against his men as Doust blasted. No sooner had he recovered than acceleration in a different direction shoved him up to the ceiling so hard that his bubble rang. He clawed his way to the window as the Connie cruiser flashed by, bathing the asteroid in a glowing flame. There was a chorus of gasps from the men as they saw the thing Rip had realized a moment before. The Consop's cruiser was playing it safe, using its rocket exhaust as a great blowtorch to burn the surface of the asteroid clean. The sheer inhumanity of the thing made Rip's stomach tighten into a knot. No asking for surrender, no taking of prisoners, not even a clean fight. The Connie was doing its arguing with fire, knowing that the exhaust would char every man on the asteroid's surface. The planeteers watched as the Connie sped away, blasted with its side jets, and turned to come back. Douse tensed over the controls, trying to anticipate the next move. He touched the firing levers delicately, letting out just enough flame to maneuver. He slid the craft over the asteroid's surface to the side away from the Connie, going slowly enough so that they could watch the enemy's every move. Here he comes, Rip snapped, and braced for acceleration. The landing craft shot to safety as the cruiser's nose jet flamed. Doust was just in time. Tiny sparks from the edge of the fiery column brushed past the boat. Rip realized that the Connie couldn't know the Federation men were in a boat dodging. The cruiser would make about two more runs, just enough to allow for hitting every bit of the asteroid, and then it would assume that anything on it was finished and send a landing party. He'll be back, Rip stated. About twice more, three at most. He suddenly remembered the landing boat radio. Doused, where's the radio connection? The pilot handed him a wire with a jack plug on the end of it. Rip plugged it into his belt. Now his voice would be heard on the Scorpius. Calling Scorpius! Calling Scorpius! Foster reporting! We are under attack! Repeat, we are under attack! Over to you! The answer rang in his helmet. Scorpius to Foster! Hold on, planeteers! We're on our way! Here comes the Connie! Koa yelled. Rip braced. The landing boat shot forward, then piled the planeteers in a heap on the bottom as Doust accelerated upward. There was a sudden wrenching crash that sent the planeteers in a jumbled mass into the front of the boat. It whirled crazily, then stopped. Rip was not hurt. He shoved at someone whose bubble was in his stomach and cleared the way. Turn on belt lights, he called. Quick! Lights flared on. He searched quickly, swinging his light. The planeteers were getting to their feet. 
His light focused on Private Bradshaw, and he gasped. Bradshaw's face was scarlet, and his skin was flecked with drops of blood. His eyes were closed and bulging terribly. Rip jumped forward, but Big Koa was even faster. The Hawaiian jerked a repair strip from a belt pouch and slapped it on a crack in Bradshaw's bubble. Rip wasted no time either. By the time Koa had the strip in place, he had pulled the connections from his belt light. He ran the tips of the wire over the edges of the strip. The current sealed the patch in place instantly. Koa grabbed the atmosphere control on Bradshaw's belt and turned it. The suit puffed up. Rip watched the repair anxiously in the light from Koa's belt. It held. Rip reconnected his light as he asked swiftly, Anyone else hurt? Answer by name. There were quick replies. No one else had been injured. Run for the cave, Rip commanded. Follow Koa, Santos, and Peterson drag Bradshaw. The Englishman's voice sounded bubbly. Look at my kid. Good for you, Rip exclaimed. Call for help if you need it. Koa was already out of the craft, leading the way. Rip went out through a window and saw the cause of the trouble. Doust had been a hair too close to the asteroid. A particularly high crystal of thorium had snagged the craft. Rip looked for the Connie and saw it starting another turn. They had only another moment or two before the next run. Shown exhaust, he called. The Connie must have blasted the opposite side of the asteroid while they were hung up. The cave was a quarter of the asteroid away. Rip stayed in the rear, watching for stragglers. But even Bradshaw was moving rapidly. Koa reached the cave well ahead of the rest, reached for the rack of rockets, and slapped it into the launcher. Rip urged the men on. The Connie was squared off for another run. They catapulted to safety as the cruiser flamed past, the exhaust splashing over the metal and sending sparks into the cave. Rip looked out. That, if he guessed right, was the last run. He watched the Connie's stern jet cut off, saw the nose exhaust as the cruiser decelerated to a fast stop. Check your weapons, he ordered. He pulled his pistol from his knee pocket and checked it carefully. There was a clip in the magazine. Other clips were in his pocket. The clips were loaded with high-velocity shells that exploded on contact. One slug could stop a Venusian Krell, a mammoth beast that had been described as a cross between a sea lion and a cactus. His knife was in place in the other knee pocket. The Connie cruiser decelerated, went into reverse, and came to a full stop about a mile from the asteroid. The planeteers saw fire in two places along the hull, marking the exhausts of the two small craft. Snapperbolts, Koa said tonelessly. Five men in each, if those are the regular Connie kind. Rip made a quick decision. With only one launcher, they couldn't guard the whole asteroid. We'll stay under cover, except for Santos and Peterson. You two sneak out. Take advantage of every bit of cover you can find. I don't want you spotted. When a boat lands, report its position. The Connies operate on different communicator frequencies, so they won't overhear. We'll let them think they've burned the asteroid clean. He paused. They'll search for a while. Then, when they're pretty well satisfied that all is quiet, we'll show up. He grinned at the planeteers. We can have a real old-fashioned surprise party. Koa slid the safety catch from his pistol. With fireworks, he added. <laughs>